We give you thanks and praise, Father, for creating us, uh, for um, gathering us here. We uh, welcome and celebrate your presence with us, and we pray that you would be teaching us um, through your spirit, uh, through um, your word. Help me uh, this morning to honor um, your word. And we ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. So if you were here um, last week, uh, you heard uh, Pastor Joel uh, speak on the prophet Haggai. We're in a series on the minor prophets, and um, Joel began uh, by referencing uh, what I think is fair to say a pretty much universally well-known and hopefully universally beloved movie, The Princess Bride. I have met a couple people who don't like The Princess Bride, but I stopped my friendship with them immediately when I learned that, and no, I'm kidding. But um, anyway, and, uh, Joel uh, referenced the cameo by Billy Crystal's uh, Miracle Max and sort of how the role was small, but his impact was big, um, which Joel was connecting then to, to Haggai, to the prophet Haggai. Um, so I'm going to begin with a movie reference um, this morning of, I think it's fair to say, um, perhaps not as universally uh, beloved of a movie or well-known, a movie actually I've only seen once, and that was in high school. Um, and uh, that's The Never-Ending Story, uh, which I realize has had a bit of a revival, I think, because the song the Never, uh, from the movie it was a major part of the TV show Stranger Things. Um, but uh, that at least didn't bring me to rewatch the movie. But there are a few things I remember from that movie that have stuck with me. One, that it does end. Um, so that was felt like some false advertising um, there uh, when I saw it. Um, uh, secondly, there's some sort of weird dog dragon creature that flies around. I remember that. Uh, but the third thing, and this literally has stuck in my head uh, ever since seeing it, is that there's a moment in the movie where there's a... Um, a child, a boy, reading this book. I mean, that's kind of the never-ending story. He's, he's reading it. He's in this attic. And suddenly there comes a moment in the story that he's reading where he's in the story. Um, suddenly he sees, like he reads him, about himself sitting there in the attic um, reading that book in the story. And he's shocked and he's, he's freaked out. Like, what, what is going on? How can I be in the story? And the reason I think that stuck with me is because I've felt at times in reading stories a little bit of a similar experience. Not literally Christian Rock as a you know, character in the story, but rather this sense of reading a story and suddenly saying, oh my goodness, that's, that's me. Right? That, the way that character is thinking, the way um, they're handling that situation, um, you know, maybe it's sort of a moment of like, hey, I'm not crazy. Like Other people think <laughs> the way I do or other people react on the way I have. And so sometimes that can be a comforting thing, and I hope I'm not alone in experiencing sort of seeing myself in a story. It can be comforting to say, oh, good, all right, so, you know, I'm not alone. I, get, I can see myself here. Other times I've had the experience, and I, I think I'm probably not the only one where I've seen myself in a story and sort of had a bit of a moment of, ouch, like that kind of reminds me of myself, and actually this character isn't doing so well right now. They're, they're actually having a hard time. If you've ever read um, the book Till We Have Faces, a brilliant book uh, by C.S. Lewis, uh, there are multiple moments when I first read that book, and actually since I've reread it um, a number of times, where I've seen myself in the main character, and it kind of hurts. She has, is a person dealing with her selfishness, seeing how she's put herself above others. And classic C.S. Lewis, right? You get convicted and you see, ooh, that's a little too familiar. So, of course, if we see ourselves in other stories, then, of course, we see ourselves in this story, right? The grand story of God, which, of course, as we read the scriptures, they speak to specific moments. They speak to history. They speak to churches at different times, right? We see, the, again, the scope of, of God's work um, in history, in the scriptures. 
but they speak to us. We see ourselves, and we rightly should see ourselves in this story. Not denying, again, the specific people and moments that the Bible was written to originally, but acknowledging this is the Word of God. And God continues to speak through His Word powerfully. And so, of course, we see ourselves. And perhaps at times we see ourselves, and it's comforting to say, ah, good, I'm not the only one who prays like that when we read the Psalms, right? Or I'm not the only one who's, who's experienced this, experienced that fear, or whatever it is. There are times perhaps it's a little more convicting. Again, the Lord's conviction is comforting, ultimately. But perhaps at times we see ourselves and we say a little bit of, ooh, that's a little close to the bone. That hurts a little bit to see how much I can see myself in this moment. I want to suggest that we, we have both of those today in our, our Zephaniah passage. We can see ourselves, I hope, in um, the, the words of comfort, but we can also perhaps see ourselves in the words of conviction, which, as I say, conviction in the Lord is ultimately comforting. The Lord doesn't point out our sin just to make us feel bad. The Lord points out our sin in order to call us to continue to turn in Him and to trust in Him and in His mercy and His grace. As we look at Zephaniah, we see, we see something in Zephaniah, and I've actually taken three separate passages, um, you may have noticed that, um, from three separate chapters of Zephaniah, to kind of give you a sense of the overview. But we see in Zephaniah what we've seen in other minor prophets um, as well, and actually we see just sort of in the minor prophets in general, is that there are times where Zephaniah is speaking specifically to the nation of Judah, uh, to the, the people of God, those who are the descendants of Abraham, who God has revealed his law to, and who is, he is specifically called out of all the nations of the earth to follow him. But there are also moments where Zephaniah, or the Lord through Zephaniah, is speaking to the nations, to all the people of the earth, to those nations who have not worshipped him. And yet he is saying to them, I am your God as well, whether you know me or not, I'm the God of all the earth. And there are moments actually in Zephaniah, and we'll see this a little bit in our readings, where um, it's not totally clear who he's talking to. Is he talking to the nations, or is he talking to Judah? At those moments, I'm just struck actually that in a sense Judah can say, oh, even when God is speaking to the other nations, that's my story as well. I can see myself in that story, right? And there are moments, right, where the nations, that they, you know, encounter the word of God, that they can say, oh, even when the Lord is speaking to Judah, to his people, to the descendants of Abraham, I can see myself there, right? And of course, again, we can see ourselves in all of this story. Just a quick note on um, Zephaniah, as we've been again in this series through the Minor Prophets. Um, Zephaniah, we're actually going back in time a little bit from where Haggai uh, was um, last week. Haggai was actually speaking to the, the people of Judah actually after the exile, after they had been, many of them had been brought out of Judah into Babylon, but were now starting to return, uh, a hopeful time. Um, Zephaniah is actually also speaking to people during a hopeful time. This is before the exile. This is actually during the time um, when Josiah was king. If you remember the story of the kings, you can read in First and Second Kings and in Chronicles, um, the scriptures, right? There were good kings and there were bad kings, right? Josiah was a good king who came after a couple very bad kings. Um, his um, uh, rule, his um, kingship was actually marked by renewal. Um, uh, he called the people back to worshiping the Lord, to submitting themselves um, to, to God. So it was a hopeful time. I mean, again, we don't know where in that season. Josiah had a long kingship. We don't know exactly when um, uh, Zephaniah was sharing um, these prophecies. But again, we know it was in that season. And yet, as hopeful as that time was of the kingship of Josiah, it actually, in 2 Kings, when it ends the description of his kingship, it still says this. It says, But the Lord did not turn away from the burning of his great wrath. It's kind of a sad moment, right? You're, you're this hopeful thing's happening under King Josiah, and yet, again, as another king takes place, comes into power, the scriptures tell us the Lord did not turn away from his wrath. What does that mean? 
It basically means that sadly, even though Josiah called the people to renewal and many of them responded to that, the trajectory of the nation continued to be away from the Lord. And that the Lord knew that even with Josiah's good and right reforms and that many people turned again to the Lord, that overall Judah was continuing to move farther and farther away. And we actually see that in Zephaniah, the warnings against that. And the first warning I want to look at in our first section there from chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, you can see there on page 6 of the bulletin, is spoken to Judah and specifically is in regard to their complacency. And so again, I want to look at sort of the story here of Judah and their complacency, but I want to in that say, where do we see ourselves in this story? What do I mean by complacency? We read that there in the, in the middle section there in verse 12. At that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps. I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Complacency kind of has this idea of a smugness, a sort of a self-satisfaction, as I think of complacency, it's basically saying, you know, what I do doesn't really matter, right? I'm not really responsible. I don't have to take responsibility for, you know, my actions. It seems to largely often come from a place of apathy, from a place a little bit of like, eh, it doesn't matter. I can get a- away with it, right? I mean, it's, um, uh, again, sort of a, a laziness sometimes can be connected with complacency. And we see that those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. Maybe sort of the attitude was, look, I'm part of the people of God. I belong to the people of Judah. Yeah, what's the Lord going to do? Right? He's made promises to us. Right? It doesn't matter what I do. Or sort of a sense of like, yeah, I don't really need to worry about God. You know, whether he does good or ill, it doesn't really matter. Right? It's presumptuous, but it's also complacent. It reminds me actually of um, the, what the um, theologian, German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Right, this sense of, uh, you know, the Lord's forgiven me, um, you know, he's, he's paid for my sins, and so it doesn't matter what I do, you know, but that, you know, God's kind of, I've got that taken care of because I've received grace, as opposed to amazing grace, which we'll, we'll sing at the end of our service, right? It's basically not valuing grace, not saying in light of what the Lord has done, it very much matters what I do because I've been forgiven, <laughs> I've been given grace, and therefore um, I'm called to live my life in obedience and worship of him. This was the complacency that was happening that the Lord, through Zephaniah, was confronting. And how does he confront that complacency? How does he, in a sense, put his finger on that sin to say, wait, stop, right? Do not remain complacent. Well, really, right, complacency, um, uh, in a sense, is a lack of attention, right? Specifically, spiritual complacency. It's a lack of paying attention to our souls. It's a lack of paying attention to our relationship to the Lord. That's what happens when we fall into complacency. This isn't really important. And the Lord is basically saying, pay attention. First, he's saying, pay attention by basically saying, I see you, right? You may say, I'm exempt, right? You may say, I can fly under God's radar, and God is saying, no, I see you. I know you, right? I mean, that's encouraging. That's good that the Lord sees us. But sometimes we need to hear that in a way that kind of shakes us up a little bit. So what does it say? On that day, a cry will be heard from the fish gate, a wail from the second quarter, a loud crash from the hills, well, inhabitants of mortar, right? I will search Jerusalem. I do hear how he's specifically giving specific places. All right, you guys in the fish gate, I see you over there, right? Those in the mortar, I see you. Those who are dependent on traders um, for your living, I see you. You're not exempt. I want you to know I'm aware of what's happening. I can see these things. Again, you have the image of I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Right? <laughs> There's no hiding. 
A number of years ago, I was at my um, uh, children's um, school. It was sort of a parent um, gathering, and the, uh, there was a teacher in the, the front. Uh, there was a, probably about, I don't know, 15 of us parents um, gathering. The teacher was talking about the teaching philosophy of the school and kind of walking through how they teach. And one thing um, he began to talk about is, you know, in the school, one of our philosophies of teaching is it's good for kids to be able to narrate back um, what they've learned. Um, so we'll teach um, for a little bit, and then we'll stop, and we say, who can narrate back to me what I just um, taught about? And so we're all nodding our heads, and the teacher goes on a little bit, and then he stops, and he says, okay, um, who can narrate back to me what I've been talking about? And then he pointed to a uh, parent in the front row and said, Ben, why don't you narrate back to me? At that moment, any complacency in that room completely left, right? I mean, we were complacent before that, like, parent think I got to be here, my kid's in the school, all right, I'll just show up, but I won't really pay attention. Now we realize, oh my gosh, this teacher is naming names, right? I mean, he is like calling us out and pointing us out. Thankfully, I wasn't the first one he pointed to. Um, uh, Poor Ben in the front row had to struggle through um, giving some sort of answer. But the rest of that time, I was ready, right? Because I knew I'm going to get called on. I'm going to have to narrate back what I'm hearing. And that's in a sense what the Lord is doing. Now, again, it's not cruel. It's loving for the Lord to say, I see you. What you do does matter. And your spiritual complacency, right, to say it doesn't matter what the Lord does, he'll do neither good nor ill, that's damaging to you. It's insulting to the Lord. So he says, I see you. But he basically also says, I'm going to allow you, actually, I'm going to cause you to experience loss. I'm going to take things away from you. Which, again, I think we hear that and we think, oh, right, I mean, that's, that's hard to take that the Lord would respond in that way, but there's, there's no way around it. Verse 13 Their goods shall be plundered, and their houses laid waste. Though they build houses, they shall not inhabit them. Though they plant vineyards, they shall not drink wine from them. In a sense, it's another way of saying, pay attention. Right? Those things that you value more, actually, than your soul, those things that you value more than your relationship with me and knowing me, actually will be taken away from you as as a severe mercy in order that you may see, actually, what is truly important. If you were with us a few weeks ago when we looked at the book of Habakkuk and we looked at the powerful ending of the, the final lines of the book of Habakkuk, another minor prophet, where Habakkuk basically says, though the wine, you know, though the, the grapes don't produce wine, though the fields don't produce food, yet will I trust in the Lord. Yet will I praise him. Now, since the Lord here is saying, I will come against your complacency actually by taking those things away so that you can see even in that loss, you can trust me. Even when you said, God won't do ill or do good, actually, as you experience this, you'll realize, oh, it does matter what God does. And it, it, there is a shaking up of complacency. That doesn't mean, right, that um, we can't enjoy the blessings of this life. We should. God gives us many blessings, and we should enjoy them and celebrate them. But I believe complacency is, is sneaking into our hearts when actually those blessings became more important than the one who blesses us and who pours um, those out. Now, again, am I saying, hey, if you experience loss, that's because you're complacent. The Lord is taking those things away from you, right? No, I mean, we experience loss by living in a fallen world. I mean, that's part of it. And sometimes that loss comes as a result of our own sins. Sometimes it becomes as a result of sins against us. Sometimes it results, again, just as being in a sinful world where sin is at work. But I do believe there's an opportunity as we face into loss to say, Lord, are you wanting to open my eyes, perhaps, to some disordered things? Are there ways in which even in this loss, which again comes as a result of being in a fallen world, you are redeeming it in order to bring me into a new place of closeness and intimacy with you? So the Lord addresses complacency. Now that second section then from chapter 2, 
Here we see that the Lord is now speaking specifically to the nations, to the other nations. We have there in verse um, uh, 8, the taunts of Moab and the revilings of the Ammonites. So Moab and Ammon specifically are being focused on there. And if the first section we can see complacency at work, in the section, sec- second section we see pride. That the Lord is addressing the pride there. Right? And again, we see the pride of the Ammonites, of the Moabites, but we can also perhaps see in this our own pride. Right? Not that, again, this is all exactly for us, but how do we see ourselves in this story? And basically, if we can talk about you know, complacency as, hey, I don't have to take responsibility, I'm exceptional, I can fly on the radar, or I don't even matter that much, whatever that complacency comes from. Right? Pride, in a sense, is saying, I don't need to take responsibility because I'm so much better. Matter of fact, I will take responsibility, and I'll take all the good responsibility because I can't do anything wrong. Right? I'm superior to others. Or at least I'm superior to some, and that makes me feel like I'm sort of, you know, I can have an excuse, or I can actually justify myself. Now, this, you know, gives this very clear, obvious pride, taunts and revilings, right? Clearly, the Moabites, Ammonites are looking down on the nation of Israel and the people of Judah, right, and celebrating, actually, their superiority. For us, of course, often pride is much more subtle than that, right? It may not be tauntings and revilings um, so much as just sort of subtle feelings of, ah, at least I'm better than them, right? At least I'm superior to them. Let me look around and find someone that I can at least feel superior to, to make myself feel better, to build myself up. And how does the Lord address the, the, the pride? Well, one thing he basically says is, look, things are going to change, right? Oftentimes, our pride is tied into our circumstances, right? Why am I prideful? Well, because I'm, I'm doing pretty well, right? Why am I prideful? Because I can look around in my life and say, I'm doing better than them. I'm doing better than them, right? And we tie our value, our sense of self-worth, right, into the circumstances of the time, right? And of course, not only is that prideful, um, which is harmful to us, right, but the fact is our circumstances often change. And suddenly we may find ourselves in, oh, I rooted my self-worth, I rooted my sense of value, actually, in how well my circumstances are at this moment. They changed, and now where's my self-worth, right? Where's my sense of value now, right? It's crushed, because I didn't root it, actually, in the unchanging nature of God's love and mercy on me and his joy over me, right? I, therefore, am up and down. I go from pride to humiliation. I go from pride to self-hatred and self-loathing, because it's all tied into what keeps changing, as opposed, again, to the unchanging reality of God's love, right, and value for us. So there's a warning here, right? There's a correction here that actually comes from love, right? Moab shall become like Sodom. Jump down then a little later. The remnant of people shall plunder them. The survivors of my nation shall possess them. This is what's going to happen. And when those circumstances change, this pride right now that you are so strong in actually will be removed, and that'll be good for you to have that pride removed, right? But why not remove it now, right? Why not respond now to the Lord's correction to see, oh, I'm, I'm looking at other things for pride, right? Who should we look to? Well, that's the second thing. The Lord basically says things will change, but then he also says, look at me. Right? If you're feeling pride, if you're feeling very superior to others, set your eyes on the Lord, right? It's, it's good to look to the Lord, If we find ourselves, oh, I'm looking to others. I'm I'm evaluating myself based on what I can see around me. It's good to stop and say, am I looking at the Lord? Am I bowing down before him? Verse 11, the Lord will be awesome against them. You just got to love that. The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth. 
And to him shall bow down each in its place, all the lands of the nations. Now maybe we say, man, is that the Lord being prideful? Well, for the Lord, it's not pride because he is superior over everyone. He is greater than everyone. He does deserve our worship. And actually, as we worship him, we are in a good place. We are in a healthy place. The Lord says, look, against your pride, I say, look at me. Right? And again, when we look at the Lord, it's not that we're humiliated. Right? It's not that we feel awful. Right? We look at the Lord and we realize the Lord is awesome. The Lord is greater than all other gods, right? The Lord is the one who created me, and he loves me, and he values me, right? My value is rooted in him, right? Rather than the the danger of pride, which constantly beats me up, which feels good for a while, and ends up turning on me and destroying me, right? The Lord is consistent. I can fix my eyes on him and truly live in humility. Again, it's not pleasant to think of pride um, and complacency, but the Lord shines the light on those things for our own good. But thankfully, it's not just that the Lord says, these are problems, and you deal with them. Right? The Lord basically says, come to me. Right? Come to me with your pride. Come to me with your complacency. I will forgive, and not only will I forgive, but I will change. I will redeem. This final section there from chapter 3, uh, verse, um, again, at the bottom of page 6, verse 9. For that time, I will change the speech of the peoples, to a pure speech. Not just at that time, you'll change, right? At that time, if you turn to me, then you can start to change yourselves, right? I mean, I've, you know, forgiven you. Now you change yourself. You know, hurry up, do it. You'll get better. Right? The Lord says, I will change. I will change the peoples, the peoples. So that's the nations, right? So he's speaking here to all the nations, to all the peoples of the earth. I will change the peoples to a pure speech, right? That all of them may call upon the name of the Lord, right? You have not been my chosen people, but now I've invited you into the family. I've invited you to call upon the name of the Lord, and that's my work that I will do and serve him with one accord. But then in verse 10, he's speaking once again to um, the people of Judah, for beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. So it's an invitation for change, for transformation, both to all the nations, but specifically to his people. I will change you. This is my work. Verses 11 and 12, I believe we can make some connections actually to our gospel reading today. I realize that gospel reading, uh, this happens a lot in our, our services where we have three readings. And sometimes, you know, you hear one of the readings, you're like, oh my gosh, that's kind of a hard reading. I, I hope the preacher talks about that. And then you realize the preacher is not, and you're like, what am I supposed to do, right? I'm, I'm like trying to figure out the narrow door here. And you're talking about Zephaniah. So sorry about that. I mean, it's just the way it goes. But I will say a word about the narrow door, because that is a passage that I think is stirring to us, right? And feels a little harsh um, from Jesus, right? But um, especially uh, when he says, um, many will seek to enter and not be able. And look at verse 11. On that day, you shall not be put to shame. Because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my, haughty in my holy mountain. So there's both, um, I will bring change, I will bring redemption, but also, and this is hard to, to read, but it's true, there will also be removal. There will be those who refuse to receive that change. Those who stay in that place of pride. Stay in that place of, being, of exalting themselves, right? So we have both this promise of, I will bring change. I will remove shame. But there may be those, again, to quote C.S. Lewis, who will say, not uh, the Lord, thy will be done, but the Lord will say to them, thy will will be done. Right? If you are to stay in that place of pride, to refuse to receive the mercy I give, to refuse to, to enact and live out the change that I bring, there is removal. 
And I believe that's what Jesus say, is saying when he says there will be those who seek to enter, will not be enter, will not be able to enter. They will seek to enter on their own merits. They will seek to enter the narrow door by basically saying, you know, I can squeeze myself through that door, right? I, I can get through. Whereas the way through the narrow door is the way of the cross, right? It's the way of the death and resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. I'm receiving that mercy, receiving that strength, receiving the work of the Spirit, which comes through humility. And that's that message, right? What Jesus is saying is completely aligned with Zephaniah. The Lord will bring change. The Lord will redeem you. But that actually means letting go of the pride, letting go of the complacency, receiving. Again, it's the Lord's work to bring change. And I do think this is a hard one for us to get our minds around. I think we so often fall into, yes, the Lord forgives me. It's up to me. I got to do all the work. The Lord is a redeemer. The Lord wants to transform us and grow us. But yes, there is a part we play in submitting to that transforming work and to living it out and welcoming it to, as a community, right, assisting one another. It's God's work. Um, but we, again, play that part in receiving that work. And we see that so clearly. But those who seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who basically say, Lord, bring me through the narrow door. I know the only way to go through that door is actually through you. Um, you can bring me through that door. Give me that refuge. I didn't include in the readings from Zephaniah, perhaps the most uh, well-known um, uh, reading um, from um, Zephaniah. Um, it may be especially well-known if you have uh, been part of our um, Easter um, vigil uh, services. The Easter vigil, for those of you not familiar with, is a service um, that we and many in our um, tradition and the liturgical tradition we're a part of um, actually do on the Saturday night uh, before Easter Sunday. Um, and um, it's a service, actually, it's quite a long um, service with multiple readings, basically that marks sort of the end of Lent um, and the end of Holy Week and the beginning of Easter. So it's the first time we say Alleluia um, after the, the season of Lent. Um, and that service, again, traditionally has a number of Old Testament readings that are read during it, and the final Old Testament reading comes from Zephaniah. It's this moment of closure. And again, if you've been part of that service, as you know, you're hearing Zephaniah and you're like, we're almost to the hallelujah. You know, I'm so excited and, and, um, uh, for Lent to end and Easter to begin. So I want to end by just reading um, uh, those uh, final uh, verses, at least a few of the final verses um, from Zephaniah. And I hope you hear in this the Lord's love, his redemption, his invitation, right, which I know you're living in. That invitation, continue to receive that change, to continue to receive that transformation, to continue even to receive joyfully that conviction because we belong to God. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. For the Lord has taken away the judgment against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let your hands not grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Hallelujah. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.